0: 4. God beautifies his inheritance. Just as a man who has inherited a house or an estate takes possession of it and then makes improvements, so God is now fitting his people for himself. He who has begun a good work within his own is now performing it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians one six. He is now conforming us to the image of his Son. Each Christian can say with the psalmist, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Psalm 138 Eight. Nor will God be satisfied until we have been glorified. The Lord Jesus Christ shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Philippians 3.21 When he shall appear, we shall be like him. First John 5. And what of the future? God will yet possess, live upon, enjoy His inheritance. In the unending ages yet to be, God will make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of His mercy. Romans 9.23 The glory which God shall ever live upon, as upon an inheritance, shall rise out of his people. What a marvelous statement is that which is found at the close of Ephesians 2, where the saints, are likened unto a building fitly framed together, which groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, of whom it is said, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Wonderful and glorious is the picture presented before us in Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing, and God himself shall be with them and be their god verses 1 through 3 what a marvelous statement is that in zephaniah 3:17 the lord thy god in the midst of thee is mighty he will save he will rejoice over thee with joy he will rest in his love he will joy over thee with singing The great God will yet say, I am satisfied, here will I rest. This is mine inheritance, that I will live upon forever, even the glory which I have bestowed on redeemed sinners. Surely, we have to say with the psalmist, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Psalm 139, 6 May divine grace enable us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. Chapter 10 God Securing His Inheritance He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32.10 In the previous verse, we have the amazing statement that the Lord's portion is his people, and that there may be no misunderstanding. The same truth is expressed in another form. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Here in our text, we learn something of the pains which God takes to secure his heritage. There are four things to be noted and feasted upon. 1. Jehovah finding his people. He found him in a desert land. It needs hardly to be said that the word found necessarily implies a search. Here then we have presented to our view the amazing spectacle of a seeking God. Sin came in between the creature and the creator, causing alienation and separation. Not only so, but as the result of the fall, every human being enters this world with a mind that is enmity against God. Consequently, there is none that seeketh after God. Therefore, God, in his marvelous condescension and grace, becomes the seeker. The word found not only implies a search, but when we consider the sinful character and unworthiness of the objects of his search, it also tells of the love of the seeker. The great God becomes the seeker because he set his heart upon those whom he marked out to be the recipients of his sovereign favors. God had set his heart upon Abraham And therefore did he seek and find him amid the heathen idolators in Ur of Chaldea. God set his heart upon Jacob, and therefore did he seek out and find him as a fugitive from his brother's vengeance, when he lay asleep on the bare earth. So, too, it was because he had loved Moses with an everlasting love that the Lord sought out and found him in Midian, at the backside of the desert. Equally true is this with every real Christian living in the world today. I was found of them that sought me not. I was manifest unto them that asked not after me. Romans 10.20 Has God found you? To help you answer this question, ponder the remainder of the first clause of our text. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. Is that how this world appears unto you? Do you find everything under the sun only vanity and vexation of spirit? Are you made to groan daily at what you witness on every hand? Do you find that the world furnishes nothing to satisfy the heart, yea, nothing to even minister to it? Is the world really a waste, howling wilderness to you? Let a second test be applied. When God truly finds one of his own, he reveals himself. He imparts to the soul a realization of His sovereign majesty, His awesome power, His ineffable holiness, His wondrous mercy. Has He thus made Himself known unto you? Has He given you in any measure a vision of His divine glory, His sovereign grace, His wondrous love? Has He? This is life eternal. That they might know thee, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John 17.3 Here is a third test. If God has revealed himself, he has given you a sight of yourself. For in his light we see light. A most humbling, painful, and never to be forgotten experience this is. When God was revealed to Abraham, he said, "I am but dust and ashes genesis eighteen twenty seven when he was revealed to Isaiah, the prophet said, "'Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips isaiah six five when God revealed himself to Job, he said. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42, 6. Note, not merely I abhor my wicked ways, but my vile self. Is this your experience, my reader? Have you discovered your depravity and lost condition? Have you found there is not a single good thing in you? Have you seen yourself to be fit for and deserving only of hell? Have you truly? Then that is good evidence. Yea, it is proof positive that the Lord God has found you. 2. Jehovah leading his people. He led him about. The finding is not the end, but only the beginning of God's dealing with his own. Having found him, he remains never more to leave him. Now that he has found his wandering child, he teaches him to walk in the narrow way. There is a beautiful word on God leading in Hosea 11.3. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. Just as a fond mother takes her little one, whose feet are yet too weak and untrained, to walk alone, so the Lord takes his people by their arms and leads them in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Such is his promise. He will keep the feet of his saints, 1 Samuel two nine. There is a threefold leading of the Lord. Evangelical The Lord Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14.6 But again he said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him. John 6.44 Here then is how God leads. He leads the poor sinner to Christ. Have you, my reader, been brought to the Savior? Is Christ your only hope? Are you trusting in the sufficiency of His precious blood? If so, what cause have you to praise God for, having led you to His blessed Son? Doctrinal The Lord Jesus declared, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all the truth. John 16, 13 We are not capable of discovering or entering into the truth of ourselves. Therefore, do we have to be guided into it. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8:14. It is He who makes us to lie down in the green pastures of Scripture, and who leads us beside the still waters of His promises. How thankful we ought to be for every ray of light which has been granted us from the lamp of God's Word. Providential. Thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Nehemiah 9.19 Just as Jehovah led Israel of old, so today he leads us step by step through this wilderness world. What a mercy this is! The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Psalm 37.23 Yes, every detail of our lives is regulated by the Most High. All my times are in thy hand, all events at thy command. All must come and last and end, as doth please our heavenly friend. 3. God instructing his people. He instructed him, so he does us. It was to instruct us that God in his great mercy gave us the scriptures. He has not left us to grope our way in darkness, but has provided us with a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Nor are we left to our own unaided powers in the study of the word. We are supplied with an infallible instructor. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. The anointing ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. 1 John 2.20-27 Right views of God's truth are not an intellectual attainment, but a blessing bestowed upon us by God. It is written, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. John 3.27 No matter how legibly a letter may be written, if the recipient be blind, he cannot read it. So we are told, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 And spiritual discernment is imparted only by the Holy Spirit. He instructed him how patiently God bears with our dullness, how graciously he repeats line upon line and precept upon precept. Yet, slow as we are, he perseveres with us, for he has promised to perfect that which concerns us. Psalm 138.8 Has he instructed you, my reader? Has he taught you the total depravity of man and utter inability of the sinner to deliver himself? Has he taught you the humbling truth, ye must be born again, and that regeneration is the sole work of God, man having no part or hand in it? John 1, 13. Has he revealed to you the infinite value and sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that his blood cleanses from all sin? then what cause you have to be thankful for such divine instruction? 4. God preserving his people. He kept him as the apple of his eye. A religion of conditions, contingencies, and uncertainties is not Christianity. Its technical name is Arminianism, and Arminianism is a daughter of Rome. It is that God-dishonoring, scripture-repudiating, soul-destroying system of potpourri whose father is the devil which prates about human merit, creature ability, works of supererogation and a lot more blasphemous rubbish and leaves its blinded dupes in the fogs and bogs of uncertainty. Christianity deals with certainties which originated in the purpose and love of an unchanging God who when he begins a good work always completes it for the lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints they are preserved forever psalm 37:28 how blessed is this did jehovah forsake noah when he got drunk no indeed Did he forsake Abraham when he lied to Abimelech? No, indeed. Did he forsake Moses for smiting the rock in anger? No, indeed, as his appearance on the Mount of Transfiguration abundantly proves. Did he forsake David when he committed those sins which ever since have given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme? No, indeed. He led him to repentance, caused him to confess his awful wickedness, and then sent one of his servants to say, The Lord hath put away thy sin. The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil, he shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Psalm 121, 5-8 Here are the covenant verities of our faithful God. Here are the infallible shalls of the triune Jehovah. Here are the sure promises of Him who cannot lie. Note, there were no ifs. Or, peradventures, but the unconditional and unqualified declarations of the Most High. No circumstances can ever place the believer beyond the reach of divine preservation. No change can alter or affect this divine certainty. Wealth may ensnare. Poverty may strip. Satan may tempt, inward corruptions may annoy, but nothing can ever destroy or lead to the destruction of a single sheep of Christ. Nay, all these things only serve to display more manifestly and more gloriously the preserving hand of our God. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time First Peter one five the rage of heathen monarchs, with their dens of lions and fiery furnace, may be employed to try the faith of God's elect, but destroy them, harm them, they cannot, O brethren in Christ, what cause we have to praise the finding, instructing, and preserving Triune Jehovah, chapter eleven. Mourning. Blessed are they that mourn. Matthew 5, 4. Mourning is hateful and irksome to poor human nature. From suffering and sadness our spirits instinctively shrink. By nature we seek the society of the cheerful and joyous. Our text presents an anomaly to the unregenerate, yet is its sweet music to the ears of God's elect. If blessed, why do they mourn? If they mourn, how can they be blessed? Only the child of God has the key to this paradox. The more we ponder our text, the more we are constrained to exclaim, Never man spake like this man. Blessed, happy are they that mourn. Is it complete variance with the world's logic? Men have in all places and in all ages deemed the prosperous and the gay, the happy ones. But Christ pronounces happy those who are poor in spirit and who mourn. Now it is obvious that it is not every single. Species of mourning that is here referred to. There is a sorrow of the world which worketh death. The mourning to which Christ promises comfort must be restricted to that which is spiritual. The mourning which is blessed is the result of a realization of God's holiness and goodness, which issues in a sense of our own wickedness, the depravity of our natures, the enormity and guilt guilt of our conduct and the sorrowing over our sins with a godly sorrow. We intimated in our last that the eight Beatitudes are arranged in four pairs. Proof of this will be furnished as we proceed. The first of the series is the blessing which Christ pronounced upon those who are poor in spirit, which we took to mean they who have been awakened to a sense of their own nothingness and emptiness. Now the transition from such poverty to mourning is easy to follow. In fact, it follows so closely that it is rather its companions. The mourning which is here referred to is manifestly more than that of bereavement affliction or loss it is mourning for sin it is mourning over the felt destitution of our spiritual state and over the iniquities that have separated between us and God. Mourning over the very morality in which we have boasted and the self-righteousness in which we have trusted. Sorrow for rebellion against God and hostility to His will. And such mourning always goes side by side with conscious poverty of spirit. Dr. Persons, A striking illustration and exemplification of the spirit upon which the Savior here pronounced his benediction is to be found in Luke 18. There a vivid contrast is presented to our view. First, we are shown a self-righteous Pharisee looking up toward God and saying, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This may have been all true as he looked at it, yet this man went down to his house in a state of condemnation. His fine garments were rags, his white robes were filthy, though he knew it not. Then we are shown the publican, standing afar off, who in the language of the psalmist was so troubled by his iniquities that he was not able to look up. Psalm 40.12. He dared not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, conscious of the fountain of corruption within, and cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that man went down to his house justified because he was poor in spirit and mourned for sin. Here then are the first birthmarks of the children of God and he who has never come to be poor in spirit and has never known what it is to really mourn for sin, though he belong to a church and be an office bearer in it, has neither entered nor seen the kingdom of God. How thankful the Christian reader ought to be that the great God condescends to dwell in the humble and contrite heart. Where can we find anything in all the Old Testament more precious than that, that he in whose sight the heavens are not clean, who cannot find in any temple that man ever builded for him? However, magnificent a proper dwelling place, has said Isaiah sixty six two and Isaiah 57.15. Blessed are they that mourn, though the primary reference be to that initial mourning, usually termed conviction of sin, it is by no means to be limited to this. Mourning is ever a characteristic of the normal Christian state. There is such that the believer has to mourn over. The plague of his own heart makes him cry, O wretched man that I am! The unbelief which doth so easily beset us, and the sins which we commit that are more In number than the hairs of our head are a continual grief. The barrenness and unprofitableness of our lives make us sigh and cry. Our propensity to wander from Christ, our lack of communion with Him, the shallowness of our love for Him, cause us to hang our harps upon the willows. But this is not all. The hypocritical religion, prevailing on every hand, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. The awful dishonor done to the truth of God by the false doctrines taught in countless pulpits. The divisions among the Lord's people, the strife between brethren, occasioned continual Sorrow of heart, the awful wickedness in the world, men despising Christ, the untold sufferings around make us groan within ourselves. The closer the Christian lives to God, the more will he mourn over all that dishonors him. With the psalmist he will say, Psalm 119.53, with Jeremiah, Jeremiah 13.17 and 14.17, with Ezekiel, Nine, four. They shall be comforted. This refers first of all to the removal of the conscious guilt which burdens the conscience. It finds its fulfillment in the Spirit's application of the gospel of God's grace to the one whom he has convicted of his dire need of a Savior. It issues in a sense of free and full forgiveness through the merits of the atoning blood of Christ. This divine comfort is the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, filling the heart of the one who is now assured that he is accepted in the beloved. God wounds before healing, abases before he exalts. First there is a revelation of his justice and holiness, then the making known of his mercy and grace. They shall be comforted, also receives a constant fulfillment in the experience of the Christian, though he mourns his excuseless failures and confesses them to God, yet he is comforted by the assurance that the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses him from all sin. Though he groans over the dishonor done to God on every side, yet is he comforted by the knowledge that the day is rapidly approaching when Satan shall be removed from these scenes, and when the Lord Jesus shall sit upon the throne of his glory and rule in righteousness and peace. Though the chastening hand of the Lord is often laid upon him, and though no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless he is consoled by the realization that this is all working out for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Like the apostle, the believer who is in communion with his Lord can say, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He may often be called upon to drink of the bitter waters of Mara, but God has planted nearby a tree to sweeten them. Yes. Mourning Christians are comforted even now by the divine comforter, by the ministrations of his servants, by encouraging words from fellow Christians, and when these are not to hand, by the precious promises of the word being brought home in power to his memory and heart. They shall be comforted. The best wine is reserved for the last. Sorrow may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. During the long night of his absence, the saints of God have been called to fellowship with him who was the man of sorrows. But blessed be God, it is written, if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together. What comfort and joy will be ours! When shall dawn the morning without clouds, then shall sorrow and sighing flee away. Isaiah thirty five ten. Then shall be fulfilled the saying Revelation twenty one three and four Chapter twelve Hungering Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled, Matthew 5, 6. In the first three Beatitudes, we are called upon to witness the heart exercises of one who has been awakened by the Spirit of God. First, there is a sense of need, a realization of my nothingness and emptiness. Second, there is a judging of self, a consciousness of my guilt and sorrowing over my lost condition. Third, There is an end of seeking to justify myself before God, an abandonment of all pretenses to personal merit, a taking of my place in the dust before God. Here in the fourth, the eye of the soul is turned away from self to another. There is a longing after that which I know I have not got, and which I am conscious I urgently need." There has been much needless quibbling as to the precise import of the word righteousness in our present text. The best way to ascertain its significance is to go back to the Old Testament scriptures where this term is used, and then turn on these, the fuller light furnished by the New Testament epistles. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Isaiah 45, 8. The first half of this verse refers in figurative language to the advent of Christ to this earth. The second half, to his resurrection, when he was raised again for our justification. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Isaiah forty six twelve through fourteen. My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arms shall they trust. Isaiah fifty one five. Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment, and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Isaiah fifty six one. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 These passages make it clear that God's righteousness is synonymous with God's salvation. The above scriptures are unfolded in the epistle to the Romans, where the gospel receives its fullest exposition. See chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we are told, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. In chapter 3 verses 22 and 24 we read, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all, and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 19, the blessed declaration is made. For as by one man's disobedience many were made legally constituted sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made legally constituted righteous. While in chapter 10 verse 4 we learn Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The sinner is destitute of righteousness, for there is none righteous, no, not one. God has therefore provided in Christ a perfect righteousness for each and all of his people. This righteousness, this satisfying of all the demands of God's holy law against us, was wrought out by our substitute and surety. This righteousness is now imputed, legally placed, to the account of the believing sinner. Just as the sins of God's people were all transferred to Christ, so His righteousness is placed upon them. See 2 Corinthians 5.21 Such is a brief summary of the teaching of Scripture on this vital and blessed subject of righteousness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hungering and thirsting express vehement desire, of which the soul is acutely conscious. First, the Holy Spirit brings before the heart the holy requirements of God. He reveals to us His perfect standard, which He can never lower. He reminds us that, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Second, the trembling soul, conscious of its own abject poverty, realizing his utter inability to measure up to God's requirements, sees no help in self This is a painful discovery, which causes him to mourn and groan. Have you done so? Third, the Holy Spirit now creates in the heart a deep hunger and thirst, which causes the convicted sinner to look for relief and seek a supply outside of himself. The eye is now directed to Christ. The Lord, our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 6. Like the previous ones, this fourth beatitude begins in the unconverted, but is perpetuated in the saved sinner. There is a repeated exercise of this grace felt at varying intervals. The one who longed to be saved by Christ now yearns to be made like him. Looked at in its widest aspect, this hungering and thirsting refers to that panting of the renewed heart after God, Psalm 42.1, that yearning for a closer walk with Him, that longing for more perfect conformity to the image of His Son. It tells of those inspirations of the new nature for divine blessing which alone can strengthen, sustain and satisfy. Our text presents such a paradox that it is evident no carnal mind ever invented it. Can one who has been brought into vital union with him, who is the bread of life, and in whom all fullness dwells be found. Still hungering and thirsting? Yes, such is the experience of the renewed heart. Mark carefully the tenth of the verb. It is not, blessed are they which have, but blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. Do you, dear reader? Or are you content with your attainment and satisfied with your condition? Hungering and thirsting after righteousness has ever been the experience of God's saints, see Psalm 82, 4, Philippians 3, 8, and verse 14, etc. They shall be filled. Like the first part of our text, this also has a double fulfillment, an initial and a continuous. When God creates a hunger and a thirst in the soul, it is that he may satisfy them. When the poor sinner is made to feel his need of Christ, it is that he may be drawn to and led to embrace him. Like the prodigal who came to the father as a penitent, the believing sinner now feeds on the one figured by the fatted calf. He is made to exclaim, Surely in the Lord have I righteousness. They shall be filled. Not with wine wherein is excess, but filled with the Spirit, filled with the peace of God that passeth all understanding, filled with divine blessing to which no sorrow is added, filled with praise and thanksgiving unto Him who has wrought all our works in us, filled with that which this poor world can neither give nor take away filled by the goodness and mercy of God, till their cup runneth over. And yet all that is enjoyed now is but a little foretaste of what God has prepared for them that love Him. In the day to come we shall be filled with divine holiness, for we shall be like Him, 1 John 3, 2. Then shall we be done with sin forever. Then shall we hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. Revelation 7.16
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.